Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Since Nikki Kuhnhausen was very young, most of the people in her life had accepted her transgender identity. Ever since Nikki was able to talk, she told anyone who would listen that she wasn't a boy. She was a little girl. In her family's photo albums, there were pictures of Nikki dressed in girls' clothes, wearing a pink cast after she broke her arm, and smiling in a blonde wig that she had borrowed from the babysitter who was looking after her. According to her mother, Lisa Woods, Nikki never struggled with her gender identity. She just knew. For Nikki's family and friends, there was never any doubt in their minds that Nikki was a girl born in a boy's body. When she told them that she didn't like her birth name, they agreed to call her Nikki instead. She was supported while she figured out who she was, and as she got older, her belief that she was a girl only got stronger. In sixth grade, Nikki told her mother that she wanted to publicly come out as transgender. Up until then, she had only been open about her identity with the people closest to her. Now, she wanted the world to know. In her teenage years, Nikki was just like any other teenage girl growing up in Vancouver, Washington. She loved pop culture, kept up with hair and makeup trends, and had a close circle of friends who she spent most of her spare time with. More than anything else, Nikki was passionate about makeup. She regularly received compliments at school for new makeup techniques she had tried out, and when she got older, she wanted to work as a celebrity makeup artist. At school, she was known as being a kind, caring person. According to Lisa, the only time Nikki was ever in trouble at school was when she was sticking up for another kid who got bullied. However, in Nikki's mid-teens, she began to struggle mentally. At first, it was just small things. Her friends noticed that she started missing the bus some mornings. Then she started skipping school altogether. Finally, she was ignoring texts from loved ones, behaving erratically, and going through uncontrollable mood swings. Nikki had become addicted to methamphetamine, and her addiction was beginning to affect all the other parts of her life. Nikki remained close with her mother, telling her about her struggles with drug addiction. Lisa repeatedly tried to talk Nikki into going to rehab and quitting meth for good, but Nikki either refused to go or relapsed soon afterwards. In 2018, Nikki's addiction finally caught up to her. In the middle of a shift at work, Lisa received a phone call that she had always feared. It was the local police informing her that Nikki had been shot during a drug-related incident and was now in the hospital. When Lisa arrived at the hospital, she was expecting the worst. But to her surprise, Nikki was sitting up in her hospital bed, surrounded by her friends. Her makeup was done flawlessly and she was smiling and laughing. It was almost as if she'd never been shot at all. The officer hadn't been wrong about Nikki being shot six times. In fact, Nikki was very lucky to be alive. 
despite being shot in the stomach, thighs, and neck. All six bullets had avoided hitting any major blood vessels. The man who shot Nikki was never charged with attempted murder or assault, and after a short recovery period, Nikki returned to her normal routine. Lisa didn't want to pressure her daughter, but hoped that the incident would be a wake-up call, giving her the motivation she needed to get sober for good. And for the rest of 2018 and the beginning of 2019, that seemed to be the case. Then, in June of 2019, 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen disappeared. This is Monsters. Lisa was the first person to notice that she hadn't seen or heard from Nikki in a few days. Since Nikki had moved out, she hadn't had a permanent address. Instead, she relied on friends and acquaintances, allowing her to stay in their spare room or sleep on their couch for a few nights at a time. Nikki's chaotic life meant that it wasn't unusual for Lisa to not hear from her for a day or so, but by the time June 10th came around, it had been the better part of a week since Lisa talked to her daughter. During those early days of Nikki's disappearance, a part of Lisa seemed to believe that she was never going to see her daughter again. There was no logical reason for it. It was possible that Nikki was on a drug binge or was distracted by hanging out with friends. Lisa explained, quote, That first day, I took her sweatshirt and I made it into a pillowcase. I slept with her picture in my Bible. I knew that something had happened. On June 10th, 2019, Lisa called the police to report Nikki is missing. Vancouver police officer Jake Carlo visited Lisa. He found her sitting outside at a smoking table, visibly shaking and crying so hard that she was struggling to catch her breath. When the officer asked Lisa to tell him what had happened, she told him that Nikki, her 17-year-old transgender daughter, hadn't been in contact with her for several days. Lisa knew it was completely out of character for Nikki to stop talking to her. The two of them had a close relationship, and Nikki told her about everything, even her struggles with addiction. When asked how often she and Nikki talked to each other, Lisa responded that it was usually every day or every other day. But the last time she'd seen Nikki, Lisa had tried to take her to an addiction treatment center for some extra support with quitting meth. Nikki had become upset, and when she went home, she accidentally left her phone at Lisa's house. Initially, Lisa figured that Nikki just hadn't contacted her because she'd forgotten her phone, but as time went on, she became more and more concerned. Although Lisa never directly told him that Nikki may have been doing sex work, she definitely implied that was the case, telling him that she associated methamphetamine use with sex work and sharing her fears that it would be dangerous for Nikki to be involved in that as a transgender woman. Officer Carlo asked for a physical description of Nikki, and he was told 5 foot 8, 120 pounds, with hazel eyes and black hair extensions. Then the officer filled out a missing persons form with Lisa. Three days later, Lisa Woods called the Vancouver Police Department and requested to speak with Officer Carlo. She told him that she had been in contact with two of Nikki's close friends, Tiffany McConnell and Faith Fieldos. Tiffany had told Lisa that Nikki had been staying with her before she went missing and that she had last seen her on June 6th. Tiffany had seen Nikki leaving the house early, around 6 in the morning, and she had gotten into a gold-colored car with a Russian man that Tiffany didn't know. 
Later that week, Tiffany called the police station herself and repeated the same story she'd told Lisa. On June 24th, Tiffany and Faith agreed to meet with another police officer working the case, Officer David Jensen. Officer Jensen interviewed both women separately, hoping to get a clearer picture of the events that took place before Nikki disappeared. During the conversations with Tiffany and Faith, Officer Jensen became more clear that Nikki hadn't run away or decided not to come home for a while. Both of Nikki's friends shared that she was a regular social media user, posting on Instagram and Facebook at least once a day, often several times. When she didn't have access to a phone, she'd log into her accounts on a friend's computer or cell phone. The morning she went missing, all of her social media activity had stopped immediately, which was very out of character. Tiffany told Officer Jensen that, the night before she went missing, Nikki had gone out drinking. She'd stayed out late, only coming home in the early hours of the following morning. When she arrived back at Tiffany's house, Nikki was visibly intoxicated, dressed in a men's coat that she hadn't been wearing when she left, and she was carrying a bottle of vodka with her. Nikki explained the vodka and the coat, telling Tiffany that she had met a Russian man who had given her both items. She believed that the man had tried to roofie her, but she still planned on meeting up with him later that morning. Tiffany was understandably worried and tried to talk Nikki out of it, but Nikki was determined. Eventually, Tiffany gave up. It was early in the morning and she had young children that she needed to help get ready for school. At about 6.30 a.m., Tiffany heard Nikki leave, presumably to go meet the Russian man as planned. Nikki's other friend, Faith, had also been at Tiffany's residence that morning. Faith asked Nikki to come with her to drug court later that morning. She had already missed one of her mandatory meetings and she knew that she would probably have to serve jail time as a penalty, so she wanted the support of a friend. Nikki promised that she would come to court later to support Faith, but first, she needed to meet up with the Russian man so that she could give him back his coat. She also told Faith that the Russian man had promised to get her a new phone. During the conversation with Faith, police discovered a key piece of missing information. While Nikki hadn't been able to use her own phone to communicate with the mystery Russian man, she had been logged into her own Snapchat account on Faith's phone that morning. Officer Jensen filed a request for emergency records disclosure from Snapchat, explaining that he had reason to believe that Nikki, whose Snapchat name was Nikki underscore Fox 01, had met with foul play. Snapchat complied with the request, showing that shortly before her disappearance, Nikki had sent messages to a Snapchat user with the username Bogdan underscore David. The username appeared to be Slavic, making Officer Jensen confident that this was the Russian man that Tiffany and Faith had been talking about. He sent a second request to Snapchat, that time requesting the records of the messages Bogdan underscore David had sent over the past 60 days. Those records gave Officer Jensen the name he had been searching for. The Russian man Nikki had been communicating with was 25-year-old construction worker David Bogdanov. It also provided David's cell phone number and a contact email address. The time and location of the messages between the two matched up with Tiffany and Faith's story about Nikki leaving to meet up with the man early in the morning of June 6th. David Bogdanov was officially the last person to have seen Nikki Kuhnhausen before her disappearance. Finally, the investigation had a key person of interest. On June 28th, police officers arrived at David's address, but there was no sign of him. However, his brother Arthur Bogdanov came to the door and spoke with police, telling them he hadn't seen his brother for a while. 
He described David as being someone who tended to come and go from the address and that he believed David was currently backpacking. Despite being pressed for more information, Arter couldn't provide any more help, and he said he had no knowledge of anyone who could match the description of Nikki. Officer Jensen was also able to locate and speak to David's other brother, Stanislav Bogdanov, who went by Stan. When he arrived at the door of Stan's apartment, he heard the sound of somebody talking on the phone. Stan arrived at the door, visibly nervous and highly strung to the point where Officer Jensen couldn't tell if he was high on drugs or just incredibly stressed out. Stan said that he was sure David had been to visit his apartment on the day Nikki went missing, but he didn't remember if he'd talked to or spent time with David that day. He also told Officer Jensen that David didn't have his own key to the apartment and that he only visited occasionally. When the officer shared that David hadn't been responding to phone calls from the police, Stan provided an alternative phone number that David was also known to use. During the entire conversation, it appeared as if Stan had kept his previous phone call going so that the person on the other end could listen to what he was telling the cops. Like Arter, Stan denied any knowledge of Nikki. Officer Jensen made every possible effort to contact David. He left voice messages to two different phone numbers, left business cards with every friend or relative of David's he could track down, and sent Snapchat messages to the Bogdan underscore David account that David had used to communicate with Nikki. Finally, on September 12th, three months since Nikki had last been seen, the officer got a reply on Snapchat. In a Snapchat message, David set a time and date where he would arrive at the Vancouver Police Department for an interview another three weeks away, on October 2nd. David arrived at the interview on time and described in his own words how he first met Nikki. Officer Jensen asked whether he had met Nikki through an escort website or some sort of other sex work service because his phone records showed that he had been calling an adult video store and several escort services shortly before he and Nikki had met. David denied it, insisting that he and 17-year-old Nikki had met randomly when he had seen her walking down the street in the early morning of June 6th. It was around 3 a.m. and he had thought it was unusual to see a girl out so late, because all of the local bars had already closed at 2. He had been standing with his brother at the time and had walked over to Nikki. I saw her walking. I walked up to her, um, asked her, asked her, I mean, why is she walking alone in the middle of the night? And she said that she had some big fight with her boyfriend, and she's really upset. And uh, um, offered her my jacket because it was really cold outside. And then I introduced myself, and uh, and then we're planning to go to head out to a bar um, to downtown Portland. And I invited if she wanted to come join us, and she didn't. So I just gave her my jacket and we parted ways there um, and and she she sorry my sister's calling me that's okay um, she went her way and then I drove drove to the bar to downtown okay um, I did I did give her my snapchat name um, wanted to just exchange Snapchats and she didn't have a phone with her so I asked her why you gave her my Snapchat she said she'll remember it and that's it and then shortly after I don't know exactly I don't remember how exactly long it was but maybe a couple hours later she added me over on Snapchat mm -hmm. 
David then went back to stand with his brothers, and shortly afterwards, he and Nikki messaged each other on Snapchat. That would have been during the time that Nikki was borrowing Faith's phone. David sent Nikki the address of Arthur's apartment so that she could come over and return his coat. When Nikki responded that she didn't have her own car, David agreed to drive to Tiffany's house in his white van and pick her up. She asked me if I, um, she, she had her phone, she said her phone was, she was using somebody else's phone and her phone was somewhere in Beaverton area. I can't remember if she said if it was at a friend's or at work or something like that. And she was asking me if I can uh, maybe give her a ride there to go get her phone or something. So I remember I, I told her that I'm going to be working in that area later, later that day I was supposed to be. And um, I could just pick it up for her and bring it back if okay. she wants. Um, and anyways, we, I, I, I was with her when, when I came there, um, I was driving my brother's work van, um, and well, she got in, I got my coat back, and... So you uh, did see her again? I did see her again once, yeah. Okay. Um, and then my brother... What time of day was that? I don't exactly remember. It was... Super early in the morning. Really, really, really early in the morning. Okay. Like daylight early or? Just like, I, I think it was just like barely sunrise. Um, and, anyways. Um, so you said you went and picked her up? Yeah, well, I, I, was, I was hoping to just go get my coat from her, and that's it. And uh, she ended up coming with me, and she was, when, when she got in the car, I don't know what was, what was wrong with her, but what she was on, she was behaving very, very, very strange, very weird. Um, like, quiet and kind of like, looking, she'll look at you, but it's like she's looking past you, you know, kind of, she was just behaving really weird. At that point, he's setting the stage that Nikki is on drugs, something he will use later for his defense. David and Stan picked Nikki up without incident at 5.30 a.m. and drove her to Arter's apartment. They agreed that the two brothers would soon go their separate ways and take their own vehicles to work. While they were parked outside Arter's place, Nikki opened up to David and told him that she was transgender, seemingly hoping that he would be accepting. David told Officer Jensen, quote, we were kind of just parked there in the driveway, chit-chatting a little bit, and then she told me that she's not a she. I was shocked to find that out and just uncomfortable and really, really disturbed, and I asked her to please get out of the car because this is just really weird for me. She just got out of the car and took off. Shortly after David shared how Nikki had gotten out of his car, his demeanor changed, and he became more avoidant when answering questions. Despite keeping all of his answers vague, there was one thing that he remained highly descriptive about. His hatred for transgender people and other members of the LGBTQ community. My, my culture, I mean, I was born here, but my culture, my roots and everything, it's for me, it's even disturbing when I'm around like, a gay person or somebody bi or transsexual or something, you know. So, mm -hmm. like I said, when I found out that that's who she is, and I don't know how I didn't catch on sooner, but well, it must have been because I was so drunk, <laughs> drinking all night, you know, and then once when the subject came up somehow, whatever way that was, I, I just got disgusted and I asked her to just get out. So for me, it's just very disturbing and disgusting when, when people are like this, I don't know. 
I don't want you guys to think that. <laughs> <laughs> would uh, would either of your brothers uh, absolutely react not. differently? No, we're we're all we're all the same towards this. We always we grew up like being disgusted by people who are gay or bi or whatever you know. But would one of them be more likely to to hurt somebody? No, no. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the investigators listening to David's interview, his insistent transphobia was very interesting. He insisted that Nikki had gotten out of his car alive and well, and then, within a minute, he would be passionately talking about how he found transgender people such as Nikki disgusting. If he happened to be lying about how his interaction with Nikki had ended, one thing was clear. David Bogdanov had an obvious motive for wanting to cause her harm, or even believing that she deserved to be harmed due to her gender identity. As the interview was coming to a close, David told Officer Jensen, quote, I wish I could help you more, but I don't know. I'm not the kind of person to, I'm not even a violent person at all, you know, nothing. The investigation was still in its early stages, and as far as the investigators were concerned, there was no evidence that Nikki had been physically harmed in any way. There was every chance that she had left town for some reason or was staying with a friend. So why had David decided, without any prompting, to introduce the idea that something violent had happened to Nikki? Officer Jensen asked David why both of his brothers had lied, saying they had no idea who Nikki was, when in reality, both of them had seen David talking to her that morning. David responded that it was because Stan and Arter had been drinking at the time and they both had bad memories. David also admitted that he was aware that police had been contacting his family members, but said he hadn't known how to get in touch with Officer Jensen. Officer Jensen, on the other hand, believed that David had been deliberately avoiding him for as long as he could. The Vancouver police had no reason not to allow David to leave once his interview was complete. His story didn't seem to add up, but there was no way to prove that he was lying, so David walked out of the Vancouver police station as a free man. In his interview with Officer Jensen, David had said that, after dropping Nikki off, he'd traveled to work where he had to do a construction job but his phone records didn't show him driving to work at all. Instead, they showed that he had traveled out of the city into a remote area close to Larch Mountain, an extinct volcano located 30 miles out of Portland. A police sergeant traveled to the area indicated by David's phone records and found that it was completely uninhabited, with no possible sites where David might have been doing construction that day. However, the forest in the location was dense and difficult to navigate. Shortly after Nikki was last seen alive, David had driven immediately to a location where it would be very, very easy to hide a body. In his synopsis of the case, Officer Jensen later wrote, quote, Nikki Kuhnhausen did not fit the profile of a runaway or as someone who had simply moved to another location. From the time she went missing, all of her communication channels, including all known social media applications, went completely dark. From this, it can be concluded that she was most likely killed the morning she met David and Stan Bogdanov. On December 7, 2019, six months after Nikki was last seen, police received a call from a distressed hiker in Clark County, Washington's State Forest. 
The hiker had been picking bear grass during their walk when they had seen the unmistakable sight of a heavily decomposed human skull. Detective Joe Swenson of the Clark County Sheriff's Office was one of the first responders to the scene. He quickly discovered that combing through the forest for clues was going to be an arduous process. The body had been left in the forest for long enough that the remains had become skeletal, and scavenging animals had scattered the bones down a nearby ravine. Close to the skull, investigators found a ligature that had been tied into a knotted loop. It contained tangled strands of hair, which appeared to be hair extensions that had become knotted into the ligature when it was pulled tight around the victim's neck. There was also a piece of duct tape, similar to the type of tape typically used by construction workers. In the first 24 hours of the search, investigators found several other human bones, including ribs, a spine, and a jawbone. They also found several items of clothing and undergarments, including padded underwear, gel pads designed to be inserted into a woman's bra, a bandana, and a bright green windbreaker jacket. Using a metal detector, the search and rescue team found a number of pieces of jewelry, a tongue piercing, a blue gemstone ring, and a wristwatch. All of the jewelry and clothing found alongside the skeletal remains matched items that had been worn by Nikki. On December 17, 2019, Officer Jensen sat down with another talk with David. So before we, before we go on, he's basically summarized everything that you guys talked about. Uh, is there anything about that? Is there anything that you want to revise before we continue on? I mean, I might have stopped by the gas station. Okay. So at, at the time that we talked, I didn't have uh, the benefit of all of your your phone records. Okay, but but now there's been some initial analysis done. Okay. So you left your phone left Archer's house and then went east, out past Larch Mountain. What happened on that trip? That trip took about an hour round trip from Archer's house, past Larch Mountain, up some logging roads, and then back again. You didn't just go to work, did you? I think I want to talk to her. It was a fuzzy day, but I don't want to take any talk to her. The officer already knew where David had been and what had happened on that trip. His cell phone records had revealed the truth. Instead of driving to Portland as he'd initially said, David had driven the other way, arriving close to the location where Nikki's body had just been discovered. David seemed to know that he had been caught. For a few moments, he stared at Officer Jensen in silence. Then he told him that he'd like to speak to a lawyer. Officer Jensen responded quickly, saying, quote, Okay, all right, you're being arrested today for the murder of Nikki Kuhnhausen, whose remains have been discovered, who was strangled to death. For Nikki's death, David was facing charges for second-degree murder, as well as the additional charge of malicious harassment, a charge that is used during acts of violence that are believed to be hate crimes. 
Since the early stages of the investigation, Officer Jensen had been fighting for justice, not just for Nikki, but for her mother, who was so strongly convinced that something awful had happened to her daughter. Officer Jensen went to Lisa and broke the news to her. Lisa later said, quote, I fell to my knees and started screaming, and Officer Jensen came in and held me until I could gain my composure. After I calmed down, he told me, I want to make sure he was charged and behind bars before I came and told you. A few days after David was arrested for Nikki's murder, Lisa spoke about the crime at a press conference. She said, quote, I believe he killed her because she was transgender. I believe that with all my heart. On December 23rd, a tip came in from an anonymous caller who said they knew a friend of David's. Hi, so um, I want to leave this as an anonymous tip, but um, this is in regards to the David um, case with Nikki Vanhausen. Um, so... I just got off the phone with one of his close friends and he was very drunk and he was telling me um, about how he's known about the whole situation since back in June and that he used a iPhone cable charger. Um, I, I just thought I would call in and let you guys know um, I don't know, I think that's really important. And if it ha he also said, um, he told me he was like, how would you feel if um, the girl that sucked your dick told you that she had a dick and she wouldn't leave, so he had to do what he had to do. And I don't know, I just thought I should call on that um, to find justice for Nikki. But uh, yeah, that is my tip. Um, all right, thank you. Bye. The caller alleged that David had confessed to his friend that he had murdered Nikki after the two of them had engaged in sexual activity because he had found out that she was quote-unquote biologically male. The caller also correctly described the ligature that had been found with Nikki's remains, saying that David had used it to strangle her to death after she refused to get out of his van. None of the news reports or press releases about the case had discussed the murder weapon, so the police believed the tip was legitimate. Later, a detective for the Major Crimes Unit met with the anonymous caller and discovered that the mutual friend they had talked about seemed to be none other than Stan Bogdanov, who the anonymous caller followed on Instagram. Although it was never confirmed, it seemed highly likely that Stan had been the one to share this information about the murder with the caller. Two weeks before David's trial began, he made an announcement. In court, he was going to change his story completely and he wanted to be the one to share his version of events with the courtroom. His defense team were unsettled by this revelation, but they had no choice but to allow him to provide his own story. The defense made their position clear. They couldn't deny that David had killed Nikki, but they were arguing that it hadn't been murder. It had been an act of self-defense, because David had felt that his own life was in danger. Oh boy, here we go. The defense only had one key witness, David Bogdanov himself, who came to the stand to share his version of events. Up until the point where he discussed discovering Nikki was transgender, the story was somewhat what he had shared in his interviews with Officer Jensen. David said, quote, 
I was in shock. I just felt deceived. I freaked out and I pushed her back and I started freaking out saying, you didn't tell me you're a dude, and started yelling at her that she's a disgusting piece of crap. Then the story began to warp. David told the court that he had demanded Nikki get out of his van, but she had refused and become violent due to her meth usage. He explained, quote, She kind of picked up her foot and tried to just kick me with her foot from the passenger side, and she just jumps up and goes toward the center console towards my gun. I'm thinking, you know, I just was deceived by this person, and this person's high on meth, and all I can think is, oh my god, I'm going to get shot right now. According to David, he grabbed a hold of Nikki's windbreaker jacket, trying to stop her from getting his gun, but it kept slipping out of his hands. That's when he picked up something else, the charging cord for his cell phone, the same type of cord that was later found knotted at the crime scene. He said, quote, I grab that cable and I put it around her and I pull her back like that and hold her from going forward, to the gun. The whole time she's trying to fight me and just reaching back and scratching my face, trying to gouge my eyes. He claimed that he tried to restrain her with the cell phone cord around her upper torso, but the cord slipped and became wrapped around her throat instead. David was asked if, at any point during the struggle, Nikki stopped resisting. After a moment, David replied, quote, Yes. He said that the cord that he had quote-unquote accidentally slipped around her neck had somehow become knotted. Then it had become knotted again until it formed a small noose with a total of three knots. The loop in the cord was so small that it would have cut into Nikki's neck while she was being strangled to death. According to David, he initially considered calling the police right away, but then thought better of it. He said, quote, First thing I think is I need to call the police, and then I think they're not going to believe me. You know, I've been up all night, not sober. There's drugs in the car. There's a dead person in the back seat. At that point, I thought I need to get rid of the body. This was a very humiliating thing that happened to me. I just wanted to put this behind me, like wishing it never happened. Nikki's dead, but the situation is humiliating to him. Priceless. At that point, David drove to the remote logging roads where Nikki's remains had later been found. He lifted her body out of his van and dragged it to the side of the road, then rolled it downhill towards the ravine. The first detail that didn't add up was how a charging cable would accidentally tie itself into a noose with three, not one, not two, but three knots. If you're using a cord to hold someone back, there's no way it's accidentally tying itself into three knots. That's just stupid. The prosecution brought up another extremely interesting piece of information. David's exact location during the time where he had been avoiding Officer Jensen's texts, calls, and Snapchat messages. David had told the police that he'd had technical issues with his phone and that he didn't know how to contact them. As it turned out, David hadn't been at home at all during those months, and he hadn't been to work either. In fact, he had booked himself a flight to Ukraine, where he had stayed for several months. David tried to explain his decision to fly to Ukraine, saying, quote, I was scared, an emotional wreck, and I was thinking I knew I needed to quit my drinking and that I likely would not have been in this situation if I hadn't been drinking, and I just wanted to get away. Kristen Arnott, a prosecutor for Clark County, remarked on the multiple lies that David had told to the investigators, saying, quote, 
the fact that he had multiple different stories, that he had had at least two opportunities to give this explanation to detectives and hadn't, the fact that he dumped the body, the fact that he ran from the country, all things kind of point to a guilty conscience and not someone who thinks that their actions are justified. That was the prosecution's crucial argument, that David hadn't simply acted in self-defense because he had never been in danger. In fact, he had simply committed a hate crime due to his bigotry against the LGBTQ community. Colin Hayes, speaking for the prosecution, argued that, quote, The defendant murdered Nikki after finding out she was transgender. The defendant murdered Nikki because his respect for human life was outweighed by his hatred for those who were gay and those who were transgender. The prosecution shared further evidence supporting that Nikki's death had been a hate crime, including the repeated transphobic statements that David had made during his interviews and even during his own testimony. They pointed out the lengths that David had gone to to dispose of Nikki's body and how long he had avoided talking to the police about her disappearance, as well as the triple-knotted ligature that had been used to slowly strangle her to death. During the prosecutor's closing statement, Kristen Arnod told the court, quote, David's motivation this entire time has been his hate, his rage, his shame for finding out Nikki was transgender. It's not about fear. This case is not about self-defense. I'd like to point out that, despite what David found out about Nikki's gender, he was still trying to get with a 17-year-old, a detail that seems to have been lost amongst the multitude of horrible things he did. After the emotionally charged, grueling trial came to a close, the jury deliberated carefully for three days. Finally, they reached their verdict unanimously. They found David guilty on both counts. Nikki's mother asked the judge to give David the maximum sentence for his crime. She wanted justice for all the things that David had taken away from Nikki. In one moment of rage and disgust, he had removed the chance for a bright, loving 17-year-old girl to have a future. During David's sentencing, the judge fought back his tears as he spoke for almost 15 minutes about a case that he described as resembling old childhood legends of the boogeyman. Finally, he said, quote, The movement towards something resembling justice may be seen as a step in the greater overall movement from darkness towards light. In this court's view, that can and should be Nikki Kuhnhausen's legacy. Just as Lisa requested, the judge handed David the maximum possible sentence. Nineteen and a half years in prison for Nikki's second-degree murder and a concurrent year for the charge of malicious harassment. It was the longest sentence that was possible for him to receive, but much less than the years of life that he had taken from Nikki and the people who loved her. David Bogdanov ended someone else's life because he didn't agree with their lifestyle. Not only that, but he thought he was the good guy for doing so. Something that makes him not only a monster, but a bigot and a coward. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. 
They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.